Hey everybody, Saul Marquez here with the Outcomes Rocket. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Alex Greninger. He is the Assistant Director of the UW Medicine Clinical Virology Lab and the UW Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine. Dr. Greninger focuses on genomic and proteomic characterization of a variety of human viruses and bacteria with a focus on respiratory viruses and human herpes viruses. He has discovered a number of new human and animal viruses. His basic science lab at South Lake Union uses genomically informed approaches to understand human infectious diseases. Dr. Greninger got his MD and PhD from UC San Francisco, his master in sciences immunology from Stanford, and his master's in philosophy and epidemiology from Cambridge in England. He has many clinical interests in facilitating clinical trial testing for respiratory viruses and human herpes viruses. And because of his expertise, I'm just thrilled and excited to have a conversation about the coronavirus, the vaccine, and a lot of questions that maybe you're thinking about that just going to be very interesting today. So thank you so much for joining me today, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. And so before we get started and kind of diving deep into the work that you do in research, Talk to us a little bit about what inspires your work in health. Yeah, I got interested in going to medical school early, early on. Um, I had a pediatrician that I really liked and sort of I ended up doing my career day in high school with a pathologist, um, hmm. which is not it's kind of a random way, but it was a great entry to realize that you could be a physician and deal with a lot of science. And then from there, just not able to make a ton of decisions. So I ended up doing the uh, MD-PhD route. And I think what I got really excited about, I think what's really always inspired, you know, some of the work is initially it was in viral discovery, this idea that there are lots of viruses out there to be found in people that could be the causes of diseases and then you would be able to cure them, right? And that's sort of as morph as that, you know, hypothesis is only almost not turn out not to be true. There are a ton of other viruses that we've known about for quite a long time where the same thing is true. We can cure or we can prevent them with vaccines. And it's just about executing that vision over and over and over. The effect size that you get, you know, with a viral disease, the ability to target its enzymes, it has enzymes that people, humans or other eukaryotes just don't have, right? And so you have a broad therapeutic window, you can make great drugs, you can make great vaccines, and you can done and move on to the next one. That's like just what's happened with SARS-CoV-2 in the last year is just freaking phenomenal. I mean, we've got small molecules that are that are authorized. We've got multiple monoclonal antibodies with the monoclonal evolu- uh, revolution coming. We've got multiple vaccines. I mean, when we put our effort scientifically and clinically onto a virus, it really don't, I mean, I want, it's, I want to be overconfident here because they're obviously like HIV and other ones that have been very, very difficult. But yeah. we have the ability to really, really knock these things out. And there's a lot still to be done on the respiratory viruses, other viruses. Just in my lifetime, you know, you've seen hepatitis C, basically. We've got curative therapies there. Human papillomavirus, we've got a fantastic vaccine there. And then right now, we really showed the promise of some new vaccine platforms and some new protein engineering principles with the viral glycoproteins that allowed us to get some whiz-bang vaccines. And we can do that again and again and again. And so it's really, you know, you asked about what the underlying inspiration is, and it's just that this is a really sweet place to be in, in terms of treating and preventing viral diseases, because you're able to sort of see it work in your lifetime, multiple times. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an incredible opportunity. Yeah, it really is, Alex. And so what would you say is the, or maybe it's a few things that have been critical innovations 
that have allowed us to move at the pace that we were to, say, produce the COVID vaccine? Yeah. So there's a lot of failure. It's mm-hmm. a lot of people who follow influenza vac- vaccines. You know, a major thing that happens from the RSV uh, vaccine failures from the 70s and sort of trying to do postmortems on that for a long time. Basically, this has been covered well. Barney Graham and uh, Jason McClellan working out, you know, how you can freeze type 1 fusion proteins and other glycoproteins in a pre-fusion confirmation. So these proteins, these viral glycoproteins or attachment proteins sort of exist as a mousetrap where they're sort of loaded. And then when they get close to a cellular membrane, they sort of, by binding their receptor, they spring. And that's what allows the fusion, the fusion machinery goes and basically allows the virus to enter the cell. So if you're able to trap what you want to do is you want to block that sort of like pre-triggered mousetrap. And so they've basically made, you know, these proline mutations that can lock the protein down in that pre-fusion confirmation. And so we've got the right epitopes now being displayed for the immune system. And then I don't think, you know, I don't know too many people who are, a lot of people are excited about DNA and RNA vaccines for a long time, but to have these new platforms, the ability to make RNA vaccines, which you can make basically like the day after you get a sequence and you can, you can make these things relatively quickly. We didn't have the manufacturing capacity to make billions of doses because it's a new platform, but I think that'll be a solved problem after COVID. And so that new platform that it was able to make get off the gate so quickly, be able to reprogram, tailor the doses as you need to, you know, that's a really, really, really flexible platform. So those two things combined have really, you know, sort of ignited the field and sort of shown that this is a very tractable platform providing the right epitopes for the immune system to see to make, you know, pretty strong antibodies. And there's a lot more to go in there. And we got to deal with all the viral evolution, the plasticity that the virus is sort of baked into these attachment proteins. And that's going to be a long, will be a long thread there. But we, you know, those two advances combined with each other, I don't, know anyone, you know, even just a year ago, sort of expected that we would be in such an advantageous position, scientifically, technologically, right? We still got to implement. There's a lot to go there. Yeah, it's really exciting. And so the RNA type of vaccine is different than traditional vaccines. Can you explain to us like how like what the primary difference is? Well, there's, there's a couple of differences. I mean, the first one is right out of the gates. It's a nucleic acid rather than a protein. You know, typical vaccine for a virus would be to either grow the virus and inactivate it or make a subunit, which means to basically take part of the virus and make that protein and then add it with some adjuvants, something to stimulate the immune system and inject that. It's sort of those are protein vaccines, either the inactivated virus, uh, an attenuated virus, or the subunit vaccines. And here what we're doing is just injecting the sort of the blueprint, the messenger RNA that makes those uh, proteins. And so basically that RNA gets taken up by cells. This is if you were like transfecting cells in the lab. So adding RNA to the cells and then cells take up the RNA and they make the protein, which is kind of cool because you're actually able to get it folded in a way sort of under native conditions. It's just, that's just how the virus would do it, right? They take the virus, give the RNA to the cell, say make my protein and the cell would make the protein. And here we're doing that just on that attachment protein, the spike protein for coronaviruses. And so that's nice because you can get multiple, you can get actually decent amounts of protein made off of those, those RNAs. It's actually relatively quick and easy to make those RNAs. And then they get degraded over time. So they're not there like long term, there's really very little risk. There's really no risk for them sort of, you know, hanging around or some of the other issues we sometimes have with attenuated vaccines. Mm-hmm. And then and then not to just say it's nucleic acid, you've got to find a way to deliver that nucleic acid. If it was just a straight nucleic acid, it would get chewed up pretty quickly. And so you've got to sort of wrap them in sort of this almost this bubble of fat that are these sort of lipid nanoparticle. There's a lot of there's a lot of IP, there's a lot of work there. That's the, probably the hardest part to make from manufacturing side. 
that needs to be worked out a little bit more, how we're going to be able to scale these platforms. But that also is very important and also very bespoke. Yeah. And so I appreciate you highlighting the difference there, protein versus the nucleic acid, the blueprint that then kind of happens inside of us. And then it's having that wrapping it in fat to make make sure that it doesn't get chewed up. I mean, just so interesting, Alex. Like amazing that we've been able to do this. So we've got the J&J vaccine. We've got the Pfizer. We've got the Moderna. Which one of those is this type of vaccine, RNA-based? So Moderna and Pfizer are both this sort of RNA vaccine. The J&J is uh, an adenovirus vaccine. So basically, they take the attachment protein and make it at high levels and put it on the outside of of an adenovirus sort of chassis, as it were. The fact that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are able to get, you know, made so quickly, go through phase one, phase two, find the right dose and get done basically before the trial's wrapped up in the same year that you discover the virus is just phenomenal. And again, those platforms are very, very extensible. I mean, that's the thing that literally they had made the first candidate Moderna vaccines, you know, left three or four days, you know, after you get the genome sequence online, you order a construct, a synthesis, a gene synthesis. So it comes in a little tube. You know, that can come in like three or four days. And then you basically can start making RNA. I mean, maybe maybe a week after that genome sequence is online, you actually have a candidate vaccine that you're putting into mice. And so they were able to go mice, phase one, phase two, phase three in under a year. And that's just absolutely nuts when you look back at the, <laughs> the sort of development. And I think what it is, I mean, I think there are a lot of people in the vaccinology field and virology in general. I mean, you never know it's going to work until you do it. And that's why we do, we have to do that, you know, right? You right, can't just right. say, okay, I, I got an idea. Let's put it into people immediately. But those technologies were like incipient, right? They were, they had existed. They had been shown a little bit of promise here. Usually they were getting funded for like biodefense efforts, you know, like that sort of things that weren't like super common. And, you know, we just needed to have, and I don't want to call it political will, but just everything that COVID just focused the mind. I mean, all of a sudden there was, you know, federal money on the table, a lot of it. There were, everyone was galvanized, everyone's working together. And that's just the sort of, you know, we just got to carry over that energy into our other respiratory viruses and our other viruses that we um, are still still up against. No, fascinating, Alex. Thank you for explaining the, the differences there. I never really appreciated that, the basic science behind it all and really the, the uh, advances that you just uh, highlighted. The other one that you mentioned was about, I guess, creating that uh, immune response and then you basically close the cell and, and it doesn't receive the virus, right? I mean, that in itself is is interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think when you talk about that, there's also the monoclonal revolution that's happening right now in infectious diseases, which is being able to make, you know, clone out rapidly antibodies, B cells out of, of people who've recovered from um, viral diseases and make monoclonals ideally put several monoclonal antibodies together, get them nice and concentrated, that's a problem, and then basically infuse them into people. And there you can take advantage that you're already sort of know where those are going to target and you can uh, block, you know, viral entry, sort of like a vaccine would. But in this case, you're sort of giving people the business end of the vaccine, right? What you want the vaccine to make is, you know, these antibodies for the most part. And so you can give that and, you know, we've got several authorized therapies now from Lilly and Regeneron um, and a few others sort of on the shelf, too, that are exciting. You know, we still have a lot of delivery problems to work out and we have to figure out the right pairs of antibodies to give in the future and how to like structure this. So there's really no move for the virus to evolve around them or to string mutations that can evolve. And sometimes these monoclonals are a little too specific. 
And that's certainly another problem in the other viruses, the viral diseases that we spotted decades or hundreds of years of evolution in people. You know, COVID, we can be on a first name basis with SARS-CoV-2's variants because there's so few of them, honestly. You know, people talk about the variants, variants, variants. We don't even bother to talk about that with other viruses because it's just so, they're so genetically diverse because they've been evolving around human immunity for so long. There's a lot of work there that's going to have to be worked out. You're just going to sort of pick them off one strain by strain. That's what it is. But again, another one where, you know, we've been able, this is crazy again, less than a year from the discovery of a virus to authorized therapies. You know, we still have a few more kinks, mostly on the implementation side to work out. How can we get these things concentrated that we don't have to infuse them, that we could inject them I, you know, I am? Or how do we get infusions set up in a way that treats people on an outpatient basis? Because you got to get those antibodies in early. That's mm-hmm. the key. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And so the promise of these therapies is huge and we're getting better. What would you say is kind of like focused on what you do, Alex? What would you say is, is how you guys aim at improving outcomes? What are you doing? What are you focused yeah. on? Right. So I'm a clinical pathologist, right? What we focus on in, in laboratory medicine, sort of two names for that specialty. Mm-hmm. And uh, we focus mostly on, on testing. So before we had the vaccines, before we had any therapies, what we had was testing and sort of public health measures, non-pharmaceutical interventions, social distancing, masking. But testing was a big part, trying to you know isolate people and sort of get that information out there to people of what their risk is, screening people, all of that. And so that was a big part of you know, February, March. Then the whole time, basically, the U.S. is doing you know on the order of two million tests a day for something that never tested for before, really in March. And it's that's been an incredible ramp up. It's sort of like yeah. bizarro world for clinical pathology because typically what we end up doing is telling you why you can't have nice things, you know, why we're not going to test for something because there's no therapy. There's no treatment. There's nothing to be done. You know, the biggest story in respiratory virus testing before this was a decreased reimbursement associated with testing for the many, many causes of respiratory disease uh, that can be caused by different viruses because most of them, we didn't have any therapies. We didn't have anything we could do about them. And so in this world, instead, we sort of bootstrapped our public health response onto honestly, insurance, and uh, started testing hundreds of thousands million to millions a day. And I think it, it definitely in the, in the Pacific Northwest, in the Western Washington area, testing has been a really key part of the public health response. You know, we've had drive-throughs open since June. We were one of the first. We provided like 20 to 50% of the nationwide testing in the first two weeks of March. We got off the blocks early. Even though the virus was there early, we were sort of able to meet some of that moment and get the information out to people of how many infections there are, where they are, and allow our physicians to protect our healthcare workers to protect you know, themselves as well in the hospital and those early cases are coming for coming through. And really, you know, that combined with sort of some classical public health measures just really helped us get beyond that first curve and honestly do pretty quite well if you're comparing states in the United States and Washington yeah. states done quite well. So that's what we focus on mostly is just trying to get tests, trying to get them out fast. So like we've got to get a turnaround time of under eight to nine hours. And uh, that's what we've been totally focused on is getting tests and the logistics and all of the interfaces that have to be built. I mean, that's the, that's the, it's all of the blocking and tackling a lot of the informatics, the pre-analytical getting staffed appropriately. So you can receive right. samples, trying to get the, the entire workflow as, as seamless as possible so that you can continue to scale and offer more testing. That's really what what we've done for the last year now. That's amazing. And much kudos goes to you and the teams that you've got working on this. It's just incredible that we've been able to respond to the virus the way that we have. It's been challenging. And a lot of people talk about different strains and things like that. 
How are you looking at at the future here, Alex? Like a lot of people don't know what to expect. What do you think, right? Knowing what you know about how these things evolve and give us your thoughts there. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's, you know, near term sort of, Short term, medium term, long term, right? Mm -hmm. So the major things like right now in the next few weeks is, you know, we got to chill out still a little bit as a country about sort of reopening because we are really clearly in many states in the middle of a fourth wave, you know, up in your, your sort of area of the woods, like Michigan, you know, they've been doubling now for a couple of weeks. They're higher than they were double or triple what they were three or four weeks ago. Washington state, we're ticking up in our percent positivity. And it takes a month to get, once you've gotten the, the vaccines, vaccines in there, like sort of two weeks after the second vaccines, when we sort of were measuring the effectiveness in those studies. So it takes time to get the immunity in. And it just takes time. We've only got really, a, what is it? A third of adults have been vaccinated. So the good news is we've got like 75, 80% of people over like 65, 70 around, it depends on the state, vaccinated. So our mortality and morbidity statistics are just going to look better and better and better. But we can still have a good number of cases. And then you know, with the long COVID and all the other sequelae, it's really worth it you know, to just, if we can get 3 million people vaccinated a day over the next month, I mean, that's almost 100 million vaccines in arms just from waiting like four weeks. And so we're really at a highly poised moment where we need to get the population effects of vaccination on board, which we haven't gotten yet. We've gotten in our long-term care facilities and our healthcare areas. But again, we don't ask the measles or the mumps vaccine to handle 50 to 60,000 cases a day in the United States. Like that's a lot of virus that's getting amplified in people that's going to come challenge the people who are vaccinated. Right. So vaccines are great, but they really work amazingly well in sort of the nonlinear ways. They basically, we talk about herd immunity, but basically to continue to make the risk low for everyone. And that's going to be several months down the road before we get the population effects of vaccination. And then after that, we've got to get the world vaccinated because you've seen, you know, as people have talked about, I mean, we're not supposed to name viruses or variants based on locations, but people still talk about, you know, UK variant, South Africa variant, California variant, New York, Brazilian, right? That's the whole world. Those are actually a lot of the places, countries that have had a lot of cases because viral evolution, you prime the pump of viral evolution by giving it a large population size, right? So the UK, US, Brazil, we did did our part in that, Lord knows, in terms of giving a lot of infections, a lot of amplification, a lot of replication for the virus. And then you put a little bit of selection on it and it's going to move. And these are very plastic proteins, especially the attachment proteins, and they can uh, they can accrue different mutations to sort of chip away at the immunity. And we know from other coronaviruses, we've never solved another coronavirus. We've got four of them that come around every winter, usually in biannual peaks, so every two years, and they're able to establish reinfection. They're able to evolve around prior immunity. I can't say they're not really able to they don't evolve around prior vaccinations. We don't have a vaccine for them. But we know the long term is going to take sort of almost like a, I mean, almost like a polio virus type sort of response where we've got to basically get worldwide coverage and try to tamp these things down as best we can. And then we have, and then you want to be really dour. I mean, the number of animal reservoirs that this virus can hang out in, you've heard about the mink, you've heard about the tigers in the zoo, you know, like it's just been a nonstop litany of different animals that this virus can go into, evolve into, hang out in. It is over the long run. It's be, it just seems like it's going to always be there. And it's going to force us to respect COVID-19, respect SARS-CoV-2, and also respect the entire enterprise of respiratory viruses because its symptoms are so nonspecific, you know, right out of the mm-hmm. gate. So come two years from now, 
you know, a respiratory disease, people are going to want to know, one, is it COVID? And two, what is it? And what can we do about it? So getting all of that together is actually really going to be important. But right now we're focused on COVID. That's the rub. We got to get the population size, population effects of vaccination. And then we know that this virus is going to continue to evolve. It's going to put mutation on mutation and chip away at immunity, just like it has. And we'll probably have to update the vaccines and just continue to implement, implement, implement and educate. And in a way, I think, especially in the, in the winters, I mean, masking is actually probably a pretty limited intervention. I'll tell you, like in terms of like a low key intervention, like it's not really impinging your freedoms too much. Yeah. And, you know, we were able to crush the other respiratory viruses, influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, parainfluenza virus, none of them had their season. That none was of them insane. Had their time. That was Nothing. insane. You know, Alex, I was talking to physicians at a couple meetings that I was, and that's the same thing that they told me. They said, man, like what happened to flu season? Gone. Mask yep. wearing works. In social distancing, the whole the whole nine yards. Yeah. But anyway, people got vaccinated, hopefully too. We had a big push for that. But yeah, we've done over... I think it's 50,000 tests on our drive-thrus for screening, not really medical tests, but screening for influenza. And I think we've had three positives in Seattle. I mean, That's it's just insane. nothing, nothing. <laughs> but then, crazy. but then you got to look, you got to look at like Australia. There was a nice, you know, some, some studies showing, you know, they did a great job, you know, with COVID, even when it sort of COVID came back, they're able to sort of clamp it down. And, you know, you saw in the Australian open, there's people in the stands, they're, they're there, they're, they're doing normal things. And their respiratory syncytial virus is having twice as many cases as it normally does in a normal season because it didn't get to book its last season. And so immunity levels are a little bit lower. It's had a little more time to evolve. And so we do sort of expect if you go back to business as usual, we're going to see all of the respiratory viruses that we didn't get over the last year are going to come back and have sort of two seasons worth, as it were. So they're going to sort of binge watch humans, as it were, two seasons. And um, (laughs) and that's going to be in the background of COVID. Right. Let's give me the background of worries over COVID and a lot of like, you know, it's going to be. So I, I think the masking is worthwhile to sort of, you know, keep around indoors, sort of some of those areas, airplanes, you know, some, all, the, all the areas where you expect it to be somewhat high risk or travel, whatnot. It's not too bad. And listen, I'm OK with it. You know, I mean, like I don't mind wearing a mask, especially since I know yeah. we're all washing like my family. We're all washing our hands like crazy now. We did before, well, but man, you should see us now. <laughs> well, it's probably the mask that's doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of the you know, washing hands is important. Don't get me wrong, but it's going to do the mask for respiratory diseases. Certainly, it seems like the masking. I mean, have you had? A, I haven't had a respiratory virus the entire year. I haven't. Either. So yeah, usually you get Thank like God. one or two. Yeah, and, um, and you amplify those. And the damnedest thing is that it's Knock just it's just like COVID was unique for this. I don't want to say super unique, but relatively unique. Certainly, the number of the degree of mortality and morbidity, but certainly that sort of power law of mortality by age. Right, people, older people were not just more at risk; they're exceptionally more at risk for bad outcomes. That aspect is is sort of common to other respiratory viruses. So whatever you got and it was just a bad cold or whatever, you know, you never know if that thing gets into immunocompromised populations as physicians, we have to be super careful about, you know, not having any presenteeism at work. They're sort of working while sick because we interact with so many vulnerable populations, but it's all related when it comes to infectious diseases. So being able to clamp down all those amplifications and people across the world is, it's, it's a net benefit. It is. Well, folks, you're listening to this today. 
there is a benefit to getting mass vaccination. So do what you can to lead your employees, to lead your organizations, to lead your providers if you're a, a health system leader to get this done. I mean, it is just uh, we're doing a good job, but we need that. What did you call it, Alex? Uh, herd vaccination? or For so long, for months now, it's been about when can I get vaccinated? When are we going to get enough vaccine? And I think, you know, this next month is the month where we bring on so much more vaccine that it really comes down to now the volitional side, like, you know, going out and seeking it, getting vaccinated. We're going to open it up. You got states already opening up to basically all adults in the state. You know, we don't have a super organized system for that. You know, the honest, the saddest truth, I don't know if you've gotten the vaccine, but I mean, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm all right. Lying. Good deal. All right. So as soon as you can, you? go get vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We got vaccinated early. It's in the nice. healthcare worker world. Yeah. So we were right there at the beginning. But, you know, you get two stickers placed on a card, right? I mean, it's not like there's a, I want to say there should be like, this is a contentious issue about, you know, central databases for this sort of stuff. But like, I mean, I want to say that there's someone checking, keeping track, but it's, uh, it's really hard. Like there yeah. just is, there isn't. It's on, it's all on individual level. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I mean, that's, I guess you could say it's a good one's going to hunt you down. But like, I mean, at the same time, we know there are going to be gaps and we don't have. And then the other thing is we don't, you know, one of the weirdest things, at least in the not weirdest, but like it was odd. I struck me as odd. It still strikes me as odd a little bit is, you know, we've got some really great tests for the degree to which you react to these vaccine reacts. You respond to these vaccines and in serological testing. And in the Pacific Northwest, we have not seen much serological testing to look at whether you're previously infected. Uh, health insurers have not been super excited about reimbursing. There have been some sero surveys that get it done. But I mean, there's just not a lot of use of serology. We classically don't use serology when it comes to uh, like influenza vaccine or other respiratory virus. You know, we just don't use it. We use it to find chronic viruses, HIV, hep C, hep B. We use serology as a low-cost, highly sensitive way to screen for the virus. But, you know, we do have, when it comes to this variance, when it comes to people's, you know, there can be a thousand fold difference in people's responses to vaccines or to infection across different populations. You've got the variance and you have multiple variants in play. You know, there is a little more opportunity for, as, I mean, I'm forcing going to say this as a lab medicine person, a clinical pathologist, but there is a little more opportunity to understand, you know, what's going on there. We still need to work out some of these assays and what's, especially, you know, as we're just now seeing vaccines, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing some vaccine failures as well. And we need to work out these correlates of protection. But I do think there's a way for a more scientific and informed response that we're not necessarily seeing translated just yet into the clinic. But you see it happen in these vaccine studies. You see it happen in sort of uh, natural history studies and people who are interested in clinical research. But we don't, we haven't really seen it translate into the clinic or in widespread population use yet. Yeah, sounds like an opportunity for us. But man, with leaders like you, Alex, doing the work, I feel confident. And listeners, I hope you feel encouraged as well to know that uh, we have thinkers like Alex and doers like Alex doing the work that we need to keep our communities safer and keep ourselves safer. What would you say you're, you're most excited about today, Alex? I mean, I think we sort of covered a little bit. The field of clinical virology is just yeah. so poised. We just expanded our sort of analytical capacity around the country to test for viral diseases, to test for infectious diseases, you know, out the wazoo. We've got actually a lot of clinical pathology, uh, sort of, I want to say private companies have taken on this public health mandate 
We've got this enhanced sequencing capacity that's been covered a lot now. And people talk about how little this U.S. is sequencing. But, you know, really, honestly, that's changed a lot in the last two or three months. And we're bringing on incredible amounts of capacity from a laboratory standpoint. We've brought it on and we really need to use it. Actually, be a little sad to see. I mean, some of it's going to have to go away because we can't maintain that level of testing all the time. But I do think that we have an opportunity, like take like hepatitis C. You know, there's a virus that we've got great drugs for. We're basically getting to the point where we have sort of, you know, pan-genotypic, no, almost no testing needed. We just need to find hep C cases, get drug, eight to 12 weeks of drug into people, and then boom, it's done, yeah. right? And so it's really about case finding. And we're at a very poised position for that virus. And so using our this analytical capacity, thinking about innovative ways to screen or screen populations for it, to just basically eliminate hepatitis C in the United States is an achievable goal. You know, I think that's actually the goal in Washington State, but I think it's 2030 or something like that. There's the old stuff like hepatitis C, and then there's the new clinical research where we got to make vaccines against RSV, parainfluenza, metanumovirus, you know, the adenovirus, just keep knocking down the virus that we commonly get every year across the population. And it'll protect our immunocompromised individuals. It'll protect our elderly. And it also, the best thing is you won't get colds every year too. So like it's a win-win-win across the board. And we have the ability to do that now. So it's just maintaining this excellence in the scientific side and then also continuing to educate and get it. Like you talked about whatever, thinkers and doers. And I mean, really what it comes down to is people. It comes down to people going out there, supporting the scientific approach. And then also right now getting vaccinated and acting smart, being aware of what they, how they, can, what they do contributes to population health at large. And so I really appreciate what you do, but also it's, it's not just about the podcast, right? It's about what people do after after they hear that or what they do. Everyone's related here. Yeah. So speaking of which, Alex, what's the call to action here? What do we need to be doing? And let us know what, what that looks like. And also, if anybody listening wants to connect with you or, or learn more, where can they reach out or where can they find your work? Sure. Well, the first things first is to, as soon as you can get vaccinated, to get vaccinated. All right. For COVID-19. I mean, right. That's the first thing right out of the gates. The same thing goes for influenza. Every September, when that comes around, you get vaccinated for that. If you can see there are vaccine efficacy units around the country that are these sort of groups that basically look at some of these phase one, phase two uh, vaccine candidates for other viruses as well as other approaches for COVID. So you can get involved in, in clinical research. That's super, super helpful. The faster we enroll people, the sooner we get information back about what's working and sort of, you know, what's the best approach. So that's another way to get involved. There's also, you know, these the therapeutic arm for COVID. There's these active trials. So being involved in clinical research, I think, is really helpful for to sort of move things forward. Like I said, we've got a lot of incipient technologies and great approaches. And it really is just about getting the data in people to show that we can go, we can get these things through the FDA and get them implemented on a population-wide basis. A lot of it actually comes at the federal federal and state level. So supporting people who are agree with this approach, this is something that's worth but it's worth funding and worth you know acting on. So that's been you know very helpful to have. You know, COVID focused the mind. I mean, it was you know totally bipartisan. This was whether it's Trump or Biden, they were in on vaccine development. There's yep. we talk a lot of a lot of crap about the U.S. response to COVID nineteen, but when it comes to finding magic sort of you know silver bullets or magic bullets to to knock this virus out, that's where we put our our nickel down, and we really can do that. So we can continue to do that, and those are the things I think people can do right out of the gates. And of course, mask up, and if you're feeling a little ill. Just stay at home. That's true for all the viruses, not just for true for COVID. Yeah. No, this is great. Very clear calls to action, Alex. I want to say thanks for joining us. This has been such a stimulating conversation. I know that the listeners are enjoying it just as much as I am. 
if anybody wants to reach out or find more of your work, where can they do that? Basically, I have a, a lab website. So uh, Greenwich Lab at University of Washington. Uh, so I think all the contact details are all there. But uh, that's probably the best way to sort of reach out personally to me. I'm happy to connect people to other resources, depending on where they're at in the country or around the world I and mean, what's going on. Definitely uh, happy to help connect people with what's available, answer any questions, that kind of thing. You know, it takes, takes all of us to, to get it done. It does. Well, Alex, thank you. And certainly looking forward to uh, staying in touch. This has been really great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a great conversation.